Okay, good morning, everyone. We will pick back up on page 102-103. Last week, we just barely introduced the distinction between mortal and venial sin. At least I think it was in this class. I promised we'd look at some of the scriptures relating to these two concepts, so we'll plan to do that today. If by chance you don't have a Bible with you, there are a few over there in that corner, or you can download an app just as quickly as you can walk over there. So again, page 103 is where we'll spend uh, most of our time here right at the beginning. Let's open up with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so once more, question 204. Is then David committing adultery, nevertheless righteous and holy, and does he remain so? Answer, by no means. For scripture distinguishes between sins, namely that in the saints or reborn, there are some sins because of which they are not condemned, but at the same time retain faith, the Holy Spirit, grace, and the forgiveness of sins. And we'll take a look here at these scriptures listed. But scripture testifies that there are also some other sins in which also the reconciled, when they have fallen, lose faith, the Holy Spirit, the grace of God, and life eternal, and render themselves subject to divine wrath and eternal death, unless turned again, they are reconciled to God through faith. So let's start by just opening to Romans 7. We'll take a quick look here. So Romans 7.23 is the beginning of the reference. And let's just, looks like that's in the middle of a section. Let's look at 21. If we need to back up further, we can. You'll remember this is the the well-known section, the good I want to do, I do not, the evil I don't want to do that, I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death? Christ Jesus, my Lord. So at verse 21 of chapter 7, so I find it to be a law, a a principle, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. Now, you can see how he's, the, the language of law here is really interesting and in some ways is not translatable. Especially this latter use of the word law, it's almost like, like what, how we would think of a scientific law, like grav, the law of gravity or something like this. So, again, when you look at this, he's saying there's this law or this way of my mind, of my inner being. In my mind, in my inner being, I delight in the law of God. And yet, in the rest of my members, there's another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law or power of sin. So I think dynamically that it's like something like the law of sin is something like the power of sin, the gravity of sin by way of analogy that draws. It's this force that pulls contrary to that of the new man, of the inner being renewed and reborn. Okay? 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because the body of death is that counter-purposes with the inner man. The inner man delights in the law of God and the law of the mind, 
of the Christian is, yes, I, I assent to the law of God. I affirm the law of God. It is good. It is what I want to be. There's another power at work within me that's contrary to that. It's like a cancer. Who will save me from this cancer? Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Christ Jesus will. And here, even more than just sort of, a, you know, through the imputed righteousness of Jesus, there's nothing wrong with that answer. But the, the material salvation from this body of death is to have it circumcised off of you, to have it removed from you. And then to be rejoined to a body resurrected and be in full unity, mind and members, internal and external, as it were, the whole man of one mind, of one uh, sound unity. All right, the quotation continues through 8.1. So then I myself serve, or am the slave of, the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I am a slave of, I serve the law of sin. And Paul is not happy about this. He's not excited about this. It's simply a fact, and it's a fact that has to get remedied by Christ. So even after we are baptized and renewed by the Holy Spirit, sin dwells in us like a cancer, constantly threatening to overtake us. Now, if you look at verse, chapter 8, verse 1, what follows, forget that there's some sort of break put in there by your editors or by the later inventors of, of chapters and verses. Read it all together as a unit. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So to be in Christ Jesus is to delight in God's law, to recognize sin within you that is hostile to that, and to confess it and plead that God would save you. That's the state of penitence. Those are the, that's the first category of sin that we see in Scripture and that Chemnitz is defining here once more. There are sins that in the saints or reborn for which they are not condemned, but at the same time retain faith, the Holy Spirit, grace, and the forgiveness of sins. You can see how this is a pretty apropos, a pretty fitting citation of this. Okay, since we're still here in Romans, jump back, uh, leave your Bible open to Romans um, 8. We'll be right back here in a minute. But let your eye go back to the text at the top of 103 three lines down from the top where Chemnitz gives us the second category then. But scripture testifies that there are also some other sins in which also the reconciled, when they have fallen, lose faith, the Holy Spirit, the grace of God, and life eternal, and render themselves subject to divine wrath and eternal death, unless turned again, they are reconciled to God through faith. And look what's quoted, Romans 8.13. So while we've got Romans 8 open, <clears throat> we'll pick up at verse 13, but in fact, verse 12, just to get the section again, if we need to back up a little further, we will. Romans 8.12 then is as follows. So then, brothers, we are debtors, ophilite, it's the same thing we, uh, we pray in the Lord's Prayer in regards to our sins. Forgive us our debts, and it's the same concept of uh, those of you in the First Corinthians class, the conjugal debtors, husband and wife. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And here's the verse referenced. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so let's understand that in light of what we just covered earlier at the end of chapter 7 and beginning of chapter 8. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you recognize there's my inner man who delights in the law of God, there's 
the law of sin in my members that delights in doing the opposite of the law of God, I recognize that and I put it to death. When it gets the upper hand, I confess. I come clean. I acknowledge that it's wrong. And then I seek to fight it to put it to death. That's the state of penitence. Are you sorry for your sins and do you want to do better? Fundamental questions in our catechism regarding confession absolution. But then what's the opposite of that that's drawn out in this scripture? Well, look at the first part of verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So we've got this law of our mind that is in accord with the law of God. We've got this law of sin that is in accord with the flesh. And Paul's saying, if you give yourself over to the flesh, now there is nothing that, says, that, that delights in the law of God or weeps and mourns this sin. What has actually happened is the new man, the inner man, has died and nothing remains but the flesh. So to put that very simply, you're in a state of impenitence and a state where there is no internal conflict anymore or what little internal conflict there may be, your conscience crying out, you immediately douse it and just say, I'm going to go on doing what I want to do until your heart is so hard you no longer even feel the accusation of your conscience. So that would be a state of impenitence and a state then that would show that one needs as... Chemnitz writes, one has lost faith, the Holy Spirit, the grace of God and life eternal, and needs to be turned again. So, preaching of the law, followed by preaching of the gospel, that they might once more be reconciled to God through faith. We can go into other citations of scripture if we need to. We can go into other examples. Again, those of you who are tracking with the 1 Corinthians men's study, you know the man who's engaged in uh, gross and impenitent sexual immorality with uh, his father's wife. He's clearly in a state of impenitence and unbelief. And so Paul instructs the Corinthians to excommunicate him. We would assume, most do, that in 2 Corinthians, when there's reference to this man who has come to a state of repentance, recognized what he's done, put away that sin, that Paul instructs the Corinthians then to welcome him back in. Make sense? And here's a fundamental point then of law gospel application that again is is taught here in the formula of Concord, uh, specifically in the article on law and gospel, and that is that the gospel is not, in fact, for everyone. (laughs) That's the statement of the confessions. The gospel is for the contrite. How does one become contrite? Through the preaching of the law. So the law must logically, theologically, proceed the gospel. And the law prepares the hearts. The law doesn't save itself, but it prepares the hearts for the gospel. So it's kind of like, imagine really hard ground, okay? And when you, if you were to drop a seed, the seed's what gives life, right? If you were to drop the seed on the really hard ground, it just bounces off and nothing grows. Maybe the birds come and snatch it or something, right? Now, If you till the field and prepare it, you till the soil so it can receive the seed. Now, just stop, though, at tilling the soil. Is there going to be any life or growth? No, it's just tilled. That's That's the law. That's what the law does. It just tills up the field. It doesn't give any life or growth. Then comes the seed of the gospel. But because the soil has been tilled, because there is contrition and sorrow, now that soul will receive the good news of the gospel. See how that works, the law and the gospel in proper order? And so this is why Luther says, you know, whoever understands and can apply law and gospel deserves the doctor's cap. I mean, his point is really that this is impossible and nobody is a true theologian in this respect. Um, And we're always and ever students but where you recognize impenitence and hardness of your heart, uh, or hardness of heart, it's always easier than somebody else. 
then the answer is not to just smother them with the gospel. The proper approach is to till that soil with the law, work contrition. Then when the heart is contrite, it's time for the gospel. Obvious proof text for this would be Christ saying, I came not for the well, but for the sick, not for the righteous, but for the sinners. And so if you don't acknowledge you're sick, if you don't acknowledge you're sinful, then he didn't come for you. He says it himself. Came only for the sick, only for the sinners, you see. So the law has to convince the heart and mind. And again, that's most of, uh, I don't know, what's your read on Orange County, the average Orange County and spirituality? Are, are they walking around with their heads down going, woe is me, I've sinned so deeply I can never be forgiven. God have mercy. Nah. So would you think then, by and large, I know we're speaking in generalities, by and large, wiser to till the soil or wiser to throw the seed? Till the soil. We're largely dealing with a culture that has a, a self-righteousness and a hardness of heart that says, hey, I'm basically a good person. Um, just let's go have a good time. It's kind of the general ethos of, of Orange County. So by and large, it's more fruitful to be law first, to till the soil and prepare hearts and minds um, to receive the gospel. And until then, you're just sort of casting pearls before swine. You're, you're casting treasures before people who have no appreciation of it. All right. Is that distinction fairly clear then that Kenneth brings up and then the corollary with the law and the gospel? All right, very good. Anything else we want to talk about? Or, or if, of course, if, if you're not fully convinced, I don't mind going further into the scriptures, um, though I think the verses we quoted are, are certainly sufficient in themselves. Any, any thoughts? Okay, please. I, yeah, see I have a thought. Um, it, the, what Paul said, uh, I might be misquoting this, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us comes to mind. Mm-hmm. And also the, uh, the woman caught in adultery. I don't think she asked for forgiveness, but Jesus gave it to her. Mm-hmm. And he didn't, he didn't apply the law. She, under law, she, was, she deserved death. Mm-hmm. But without her even asking for forgiveness, he, he gave it to her. So I'm, I'm wondering, how do those things fit in here? Yeah, great question. So um, the second one, I think, is, is more, slightly more difficult. The first one is that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That's the objective transaction that God conducted, that the persons of the Trinity conducted themselves entirely apart from the human race. We heard that in the epistle lesson. It's just astonishing language. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. What's going on on the cross? And we heard it again this morning then in the book of Concord reading that Christ offers himself to the Father as a sacrifice for our sins. That's a transaction that happens entirely apart from the human race. We have no participation in that transaction. It's 100% God. And that's what it means, that's what Paul's getting at when he says, while we were still sinners. That is, there's, there's, there was nothing in us remotely new, worthy, etc. And God did this thing entirely apart from us and outside of us. So far, so good on that one? Okay. And then the other one, yeah, is maybe more to the point. But I think suffice it to say, the Lord sees contrition in the woman. We're talking about John 8, where she's brought before accused of adultery. Uh, she's been caught in the act, they say. She offers no defense whatsoever. It's self-evident then by her actions and by her face. I, and so I think without going into any more elaborate theories, our Lord sees contrition and grants absolution. Um, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Yeah. Now, um, an, an interesting tidbit as part of that uh, is speculations about what Jesus was writing with his finger. And it's, it's not, it doesn't matter what you think about this, um, but it, there is an interesting theory that, in fact, what he was writing um, was the verse in uh, the Old Testament. I think it's Deuteronomy. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. Uh, that, conde- that says that adulterers should be condemned, should be stoned to death. That he's writing that. So then he says, let who, so he's like, I'm on board. 
100%. Let's do this. Here's what the law is. So I'm with you. Now let him who has no sin pick up the first stone. Which is a, f- a fascinating trap. I mean, if that is the case, if that is what he's writing. Uh, other speculations are he's writing their sins or he's writing the law. Or he's, you know, who knows what he's doing. Um, but, but that is an interesting, fascinating uh, take on that, is that he's, he's setting himself up. I think Kenneth Bailey does this in his, uh, one of his texts. He's a guy who spent, a scholar who spent decades over there in the Middle East kind of drinking in the culture. And that's his assumption if my memory serves. The idea then being that Jesus is like, yep, that's what the law says. Now are you going to execute the law? Or is it rather not the place of God to execute the law, Um, particularly where there's contrition, particularly where Christ has come and they seem to be sort of picking and choosing which of the civil laws they're going to uphold. And they seem to be pretty subjective about that pretty biased about that. She was given the law. She was absolutely given the law and she's drugged before them with a debt. Yeah, before Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the short answer, Chris. I, well, it's not short at all. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. My question is, like, it's easy to see the sins outside ourselves, especially in our culture. Mm-hmm. But how do we direct ourselves and others to the sins within us, we can we have scripture, but how do you penetrate this culture? Yeah, I, I mean that's kind of the magical question. Of course, tilling up the soil, you can point to uh, their conscience. You can point to right or wrong. You can catch them in their self righteousness. You can do these kinds of things. But it's frequently the case that, I mean, as with all of this, it's God's work. So the best you can do is. Uh, be a mouthpiece and let God do the effective work when and where he pleases. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I just don't think it's very common. I, despite sort of what TV evangelists and or popular preachers, district presidents at pastor's conventions seem to say, like this happens to them all the time. Like I sat down with a pagan and after a 45 minute flight, I had them fully converted and in tears. It's like, yeah, right. You did. I mean, no, <laughs> It's just, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe that's exactly what happened. But that's the only instance I've ever heard of that in my entire, entire life in the church. Because the reality of it is that it doesn't happen in these dramatic one-time conversations. There, it's usually a conversion by a thousand paper cuts. You know, it's, there's this and there's this and there's things forgotten and there's a foundation. There's, as we kind of say, proverbially seeds, seeds planted that in due time sprout up. So, yeah, color, color me skeptical. I mean, I know it does happen, okay, but I think it's much rarer than sometimes we get. So all that to, to say and to encourage you that as you engage with people, don't be afraid if you don't penetrate, right? Within 20 minutes, you know, sitting outside of the outside of the shopping mall or whatever. So, yeah, please. My question goes right along with this. I've often wondered about the success of those who stand on the corner shouting, Jesus mm-hmm. saves. Mm-hmm. They do it in good faith, but we know that, you know, hardened hearts think it's foolishness. So, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I, I don't know about the wisdom of that approach. Um, are we talking about the megaphone people like outside of the sports events? Yeah, you're all going to hell. You're going to, yeah, and all this stuff. I, I, I don't really see much wisdom there to that approach personally, but I mean, can God use it? Of course he can use it. Does he choose to? I don't know. Can God use a televangelist to convert people? I'm sure. I'm sure. But does that mean we should support televangelism in those guys? No, probably not. So, Was there another, uh, another hand, another question? Okay, we'll jump back into it here. Um, I was just looking up. Let me see if I can grab article 5 here. Article 4 in the Formula of Concord is good works. 
five is law and gospel, and six is third use of the law. So a very good little section, and they're not long. So if you're interested in these things and you want to refresh yourself with exactly what the Book of Concord teaches, well worth your time. So listen, listen to this quotation from the Formula Solid Declaration, Article 5, The Law and the Gospel. The comforting preaching of the Holy Gospel offers His, Christ's, merits to all penitent sinners who are terrified by the preaching of the law. The Gospel proclaims the forgiveness of sins, not to coarse and self-secure hearts, but to the bruised or penitent. The preaching of the Gospel must be added so that the repentance may lead to salvation and not to the law's contrition or terrors. Okay, so in other words, uh, the law comes first, tills the soil, creates that contrition, and then the gospel must be added. But if you're just throwing out the gospel to coarse and self-secure hearts, not going to do a darn thing. going to be seed bouncing off hard soil. And that's the, the teaching of the Book of Concord there on the law and gospel. Anything else before we move on with Chemnitz? Looks okay. 205 then. What is the use of retaining and earnestly inculcating this difference between mortal and venial sin in the church? And he's got three different categories here. One, the first, that we might learn to acknowledge and earnestly avoid mortal sins. Two, if we are caught in that kind of sins, that we do not obstinately persevere and continue in them impenitently. And three, that we try the more to restrain and control sin that dwells in us, lest it become mortal. For when this distinction is neglected or not rightly understood and used... Christians also often fall into security and impenitence. Pastors are therefore to be reminded and trained in examinations not only to list the seven mortal or deadly capital sins, so I can't even do it probably, pride, lust, gluttony, greed, uh, sloth or apatheia, Wrath. I'm missing one. I'm always missing one. I got to cheat. Envy. Envy is the last one. So the seven deadly sins that we all think of as modern Lutherans as being, oh, that's medieval and not a, not a, a good thing for Lutherans to know. Chemnitz, who's like the, the second of the greatest Lutheran teacher, is like, yeah, no, you need to know them. So I've got to uh, spend some time there on those. Pastors are therefore to be reminded and trained in examinations. Remember, the nature of this book is that it would be used so pastors could study and then their supervisors would come and question them on these things. And if they, like me, just forgot one of them, they could say, hey, you forgot envy and you probably should memorize that before the next time I see you. Kenneth continues, but to be able to point out to their hearers in each commandment which sins are mortal, which venial. So what you start to see here also is that there's there's a, a, a bit of a distinction. It's a subtle distinction and a difficult distinction, but a distinction to be made between strictly defining mortal and venial as uh, penitent and impenitent. But there's also a nature of the sin itself, a gravity of the sin itself that immediately indicates it's mortal. So again, David with Bathsheba, you see all kinds of premeditation. You see all kinds of plotting and planning. You see all kinds of attempts to cover up and not only cover up, but end up looking like a hero and looking like you were the good guy, even though the whole time you were the bad guy. 
Okay, so there are, there are mortal sins in and of themselves because they simply can't be committed with a Christian without him having lost his faith and cast aside the Holy Spirit. That's what you start to see emerge as this other kind of category. And again, I think the two are overlapping, somewhat interwoven to be sure, but it's just not always so simple as we Lutheran pastors like to present it as like, well... Any sin, if it's impenitent, is mortal, and any sin, if it's penitent, is uh, venial. Uh, It's true to a point. It's generally true. But, for example, you can't really penitently and with premeditation commit adultery, physical adultery with a woman. David bears that out. Okay? So... Let's just wrap up, and I, I see that there might be some questions or comments. Chemnitz writes, let definitions as to what is venial sin, what mortal sin, be sought from Philip Melanchthon's examination, and for the sake of declaration be added to these questions. So a referral there to a piece by Melanchthon, and I don't know anything about that piece or what might be listed therein. All right, what do you think? Is this new? Surprising? I just, when we read um, Walter's long gospel, Mm -hmm. didn't he um, just say repentant Mm -hmm. and impenitent? Generally so. Mm -hmm. Generally so. But I do know that... So the question was, um, remember, um, was doesn't Walther in Law and Gospel, in one of his theses, I couldn't tell you which one, doesn't he effectively say or define venial sin as that sin for which we are penitent and uh, mortal sin, that for which we are impenitent? And I agreed. I said, yes, I think so. I don't know which specific thesis, but I, wouldn't, I, I do believe that's one of his theses. And like I said, it's generally true. The, the thesis in Walther's Law and Gospel that would be uh, germane to this particular point, mortal and venial sins defined as gravity or as the nature of the sin, would be in Thesis 10. And I know that because it's the most controversial thesis and it's the hardest to accept. And, and there may in truth be some parts of his explanation of that thesis that we don't necessarily agree with. Um, but that at least will be Walther believing himself to be standing in the tradition of Luther and Chemnitz and the later uh, Orthodox Lutherans in making those definitions. Yeah. Sure. My experience is I associated that with uh, Roman Catholic theology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, the, I think the trick here is to realize that, well, and mortal and venial sins themselves, I, I mean, sorry, the seven deadly sins themselves can be viewed from different angles. So the two most common angles is that the nature of a singular act, one of these seven singular acts when done uh, manifestly, grossly, uh, that that constitutes, or it shows forth in um, a state of, of impenitence and a lack of faith in and of itself. That would be one lens through which, so obviously like with... Uh, Wrath, it would be, you know, if it becomes murderous or something like that, or lust if it manifests in a physical adultery, um, greed if it manifests in stealing, you know, something of substance. We're not talking about like something incidental here. Okay, but then the second lens would be to see these things as pernicious, as, as effectively passions within. And so where you let those passions have reign, they manifest not only in maybe one or two particularly egregious sins, but they have a tendency to take over a person's nature. So a person can, um, you know, obviously we've seen people who are extremely proud, arrogant, boastful. Uh, It can take over one's nature or lust, people entirely. And lust has many, you know, different forms besides just the sexual even though that's probably chiefly what's in view here in the seven deadly sins. 
Um, gluttony is one that's just so pervasive in our culture because it's, it's not just food, it's everything. We're constantly feasting. We're constantly, uh, you know, the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is like one of the most horrific parables because it's like we're constantly wearing our finest and eating the best and whatever we lack, we order on Amazon and so on and so forth. So... Um, Greed, of course, in our capitalistic society runs rampant in some, and you, you can see how corporations are just, th- and certain leaders of corporations are just completely uh, taken over by the deadly sin of greed. Uh, sloth can be just mere laziness, but the Latin is acedia or achadia, and that is actually more of a spiritual apathy. So many, many of our teachers for a long time have been saying that that's really what has been ailing Christianity in America. This is maybe the chief spiritual deadly sin. It's just apathy. Just, I don't, I don't even, I believe in Jesus, but I don't even care enough to go to church. I believe in Jesus, but I don't even care enough to read my Bible or study or, you know, get involved or whatever. It's just complete uh, sloth, achadia spiritually. Um, Wrath or anger? I don't know. In our culture, we... That'd be an interesting conversation to have just back and forth and see if we could get anywhere. But I tend to think our our culture is not wrathful enough. We're we're almost given over to this, hey, everybody's a nice guy. It's like, oh, are they... they?" We got little ears here. Think of the abominations that go on and we're all just like, ah, this is fine. I think of the abuses that go on to minors in, in hospitals and in medical clinics, and we're just like, ah, eh. I, I mean, these are, these are things that would, probably if you told your great-great-grandfather that this is what's going on, he'd be like, so you already got, have your rifle, right? <laughs> Hans, get the flammenwerfer. <laughs> yes, sir. There's lots of wrath and anger, in our society, it's just misdirected. It's directed. Oh yeah, good things. point. Good point. There's plenty of plenty of wrath. burning cities and yeah, they're, uh, yeah, they're all yeah, angry. Yeah. They're wrathful. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're calling us the hateful people. I don't know why I wasn't even thinking of that. It's so obvious. That's Great point. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's why I rely on you all. Yeah. Think of think of just the wrath. I was listening to a woman talking about um, talking about reparations. She was like, even if you gave me all the money in the world, it wouldn't be enough. It's like the whole implication is like, what would be enough to satisfy your wrath? And the answer was literally nothing. Just ever-consuming fire, ever-consuming wrath. Not a sense of justice, but a sense of just, every, you, can't, you cannot give me enough. You know? Yeah, wrath is, thank you for that. Wrath is around. Maybe I'm just so sheltered in the church and I just see... So many men who need to realize that they are men and actually get angry about something. Be nice. Nice. Okay. And then envy. Uh, envy permeates. That's, the, that's really, I think of envy a lot along the lines of covetousness. And remember the, in our numbering system, who cares about the numbers? But uh, commandments 9 and 10, coveting house and coveting neighbor's wife and children, etc., etc., um, but that coveting is the law ending not with a whimper, but with a bang, because you just realize how deeply the law convicts you from the first, you shall have no other gods, you should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, all the way to the end, you shall not covet, which is, you know, coveting isn't so much the desire to, like, succeed in life. That's not coveting. It's not coveting to say as a young man, I want to get a job or I want to be physically fit or I want to be successful or I want to have a house for a family. That's not strictly speaking coveting. Coveting is the kind of thing where you look at your neighbors and go, I I want what's his. I deserve it. He doesn't. And you're making these kinds of judgments. Um, And then then coveting also likewise manifests itself in this sense of, uh, well, I don't want one house. I want one house in on both coasts and one house on all the continents. And, you know, then it's, you know, it's kind of never ending. Um, you've got to be really careful. I mean, as, as Christians doing, we, we sometimes call it culturally collecting. 
But collecting can really show you a window into coveting because no sooner than you've hit the buy button, you've got the little endorphin rush or whatever it is, you're already looking or starting to look for the next. Or it arrives and you get that, you know, you get that shot of whatever's going on in your mind, the dopamine hit, and then you, uh, you, you, know, you put it in the collection. There it is. And it's not but like another 24 or 48 and you're looking for the next thing. So that constant dissatisfaction, that's uh, when I think of envy, that's, that tends to be the way my mind goes, but I'm sure there's other ways. Keeping up with the Joneses. They have nicer rain gutters than I do. We can, we can be jealous about anything, envious about anything, can't we? Silly. Okay, anything else? Yeah, sir. So, just an observation or a clarification. This specific list of seven deadly sins, mm -hmm. that's evolved. Various church fathers, I believe, have, mm -hmm. have had different lists. And the East mm -hmm. adds things a little different than the West. The numbers have changed. Sure. Um, so, it's not that that specific list is inspired as saying, these <laughs> right. are the only ones, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then there may be some, like you mentioned with anger, where it's a little bit more nuanced, where you're not saying anytime you're angry, that is sinful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the principle is really helpful, but maybe not get hung up on the specific seven. Great point. Yeah, I, I, I find that to be a completely helpful comment. Absolutely. And the, and the flip side of this, too, to be a little bit more positive is very frequently, whether it's this list or a slightly modified list, as David was mentioning, you find a corresponding list of virtues. And sometimes those virtues are exactly sort of symmetrical. They're the mirror reflection. Um, and other times they're more nuanced or, or, I mean, what would be a good kind of pride? What would be a good kind of boasting, biblically speaking? Good labor that you do, Yeah, you could. Yeah, sure. You could do. You could have some. You could have a sense of pride in that. Pride of, hey, I did a good for you. Sure. Yeah. I don't. I'm not. I wouldn't object to that. Boasting in Christ. That's the chief one I had in mind. Yeah, that you can be proud, and un, uncompromisingly proud in my Lord, and who He is, and what He's done, and what He says. And pardon me if I'm not going to be embarrassed because He said it, and I know that that boggles your imagination and sounds horrific, but I don't care. Because he's smarter than you and he's smarter than me. Yeah. Be absolutely proud in Christ and let your boasting be in Christ. And, and then I agree with you, Eric, what flows downstream from that too. Mm -hmm. Fine. So yeah, there, so even, even pride and of course the obvious low-hanging fruit would be that the opposite of pride is humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's probably in view there. So yeah, there's lots of meditation that can be had um, negatively in terms of the sins, positively in terms of the virtues. All right, any other thoughts? Okay, so 206. Is then original sin, which still remains in the reborn in this life, in itself such a light little sin, or so to say, peccadillo, that God neither can nor wants to be angry against it. Here's the answer. All sins are not equal. Some are more grievous and greater than others. And there's citations given. Um, I, I don't know, it may be the John citation. I, I didn't look any of these up. But remember when Jesus is talking to Pilate and he says, the one who gave you over or gave me over to you has the greater sin. So if you needed a proof text, there it is. But again, I don't think you need a... Are all sins equally damning? Yeah, all sins are equally damning. Even a tiny little sin like eating an apple, right? All sins are equally damning, but that doesn't mean all sins are equal. And of course, if you stop and think about this as a parent with children, you immediately know that. It's the difference between like your child saying, oh, I want to kill you to their sibling, which is terrible and has to be corrected, versus them running at them to try it. <laughs> so, yeah, we, and we know of this even then writ large in, uh, in the justice system, let's say, where not every crime is equal and requires the same 
punishment. Clearly not. That doesn't make sense. So all sins are not equal. Before God, they're equally damning, but they're not equal. Chemnitz continues, some are more grievous and greater than others. Yet if one judges according to the sense of the divine law, no sin per se and by its own nature deserves forgiveness. So that's the, that's the key that Chemnitz wants to draw out right at the front, is that no sin deserves forgiveness. See, so, you know, we commonly, we just commonly do this because we're sinners and we're so used to sin and we're so used to imperfection that, you know, somebody does some little sin and you don't even think of it as a sin. It's just so common, right? No problem. But an important thing to realize that according to the divine law, no sin by itself and per se is so small that it deserves forgiveness. Kenneth continues after the semicolon, that is, none who is so small and insignificant, but that it makes one subject to divine wrath and worthy of eternal damnation if God enters into judgment with him. And there's lots of quotations here. The James 2.10 one is maybe most familiar to me off the top of my head. And that is, um, whoever uh, has, has broken the law in one place is guilty of it all. So the full weight of the law coming down for the smallest infraction. Because what is an infraction of the divine law at root? God says no, and you say yes. Or God says yes, and you say no. That is in and of itself a claim to be, to be God. It's a, it's a rebellious, treasonous act, no matter how small. That's the nature and essence of sin. It's not like God is particularly petty. It's just that an affront to him and his word is just that, the attempt to overcome him. So in that sense, then, and that's the scriptural sense, all, all sin, no matter how, quote-unquote, small or insignificant, is an act of rebellion against God, an act of self-deification, and it is thus uh, subject to divine wrath and worthy of eternal damnation if God enters into judgment. Continuing then, right after that, James 2.10 citation there, reference. This error regarding the least commandment of the divine law is condemned by Christ in the Pharisees. Matthew 5.19. Paul sadly complains also about sin still dwelling in his flesh, Romans 7.24, and that's what we hit earlier. Okay. So back to the original question, is then original sin, which still remains in the reborn in this life, in itself such a light little sin, or so to say a peccadillo, that God neither can nor wants to be angry against it? Of course he can be justly wrathful and angry at original sin and all the small sins that um, flow from that relative to the big sins. So the idea here, I mean, what's kind of implied contextually, is that a Christian, because he is a Christian, isn't committing these great big sins. Isn't on a, your average Tuesday just going out and fornicating and on your average Wednesday robbing a liquor store and, and you know, next Thursday you're, you're going to go out and uh, just completely be a glutton. No, Christian, Christians as Christians, are avoiding these gross manifest sins. But what pops up still is this, are the sins that just come out of the original sin. So angry when you shouldn't be angry. You nip it in the bud, but there it is. You're, you know, you covet as you're browsing online, and then you close the browser and you go, I've got more than enough. <laughs> that kind of thing. That's common, common, common. That's every day. That's why the catechism teaches that God has to daily and richly forgive us all our sins. And that's what's in view when he talks about original sin. He's talking about those things that just bubble up by the sinful nature. Um, but are they so small that God isn't, you know, shouldn't be angry? No, he's angry over them. He has the right to be angry over them, but he overlooks them for the sake of the imputed righteousness of Christ, that robe of Christ's righteousness that we've been given in baptism that covers us. Make sense? All right, anything there? We want to go on to 207. 207 it is. Are some sins so great and horrible that they cannot be forgiven in the gospel to those who repent and believe in Christ? 
Answer, no. What a beautiful statement. Just right off the bat. Christ made satisfaction for all sins. 1 John 2, 2. But he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not all the sins except the really bad ones. There's no sin where Christ goes, oh, oh, no, 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 that's too much. That's too bad. Even when we get to the sin of the Holy Spirit, a sin against the Holy Spirit, which is coming up next on page 105, the unforgivable sin or sin against the Holy Spirit is not unforgivable because of its weight or its magnitude, but rather because of the effect it has on one's soul. So it's not as though it's a sin so great, it's a kind of sin that it's very inner dynamic, it's very nature precludes one from faith, from receiving the forgiveness of sins, and thus from being forgiven. We'll have time to meditate on that uh, as we get there at 105. But this statement is absolutely true. Even the sin against the Holy Spirit or the quote-unquote unforgivable sin isn't such because it is so horrible or so big. Christ died for every last sin, no matter how horrible, no matter how big. That's an objective fact. Now, it's to be received by faith. Like, if Christ died for every single sin, then how could anyone ever go to hell? It's they're objectively paid for. Well, this gospel, as St. Paul says, is to be received by faith. And if it's not believed, then it's true. It's just not effective. There's all kinds of analogies we could use for that. It's like some, some king came to you or something and said, you know, some guy from Mumbai and was like, hey, I put a million dollars in this account and it's yours to draw on any time you want. And you didn't believe him. Would you ever use that million dollars? Would you ever, in fact, have it? I mean, in one sense, you'd objectively have it, but subjectively, you wouldn't have it because you didn't believe. You see? That's a fair analogy for the fact that Christ has credited to you the full wealth and treasure of all the righteousness you need to please the Father and get into heaven. If you believe, it's yours. If you don't believe him, it's just sitting there, ineffective for you. So that's what Paul means, by analogy at least, to that this objective payment that Christ made, this objective treasure and wealth of righteousness that pleases the Father and covers all our debts, is to be received by faith. So are some sins so great and horrible they cannot be forgiven in the gospel to those who repent and believe in Christ? Like if you say, if you came to, you died and you came to the judgment throne of Christ and you said, Lord, please have mercy, I've done these things. Would Christ ever say, well, that thing was too great. That thing was too disgusting. That was too much of an abomination. No, he wouldn't. To the repentant, he desires nothing more than to forgive. All right, Chemnitz continues. He wants to save also the greatest sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. He commanded repentance and remission of sins to be preached in his name to all sinners. John 20.23 and Matthew 9.13. Some other citations from Luke. Grace abounded more than sin. Romans 5.20. Since I've got that uh, open and handy right here, I'll... Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, what one trespass is being talked about? Adam's sin. Yeah, Adam's sin. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Whose act of righteousness is that? Christ, uh, his death on the cross for us. So Adam, one man, led us into sin. Christ, one man, has led us into righteousness. Then 19.4, as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, by Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, 
so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the shorthand point and why Chemnitz references it is that sin cannot outstrip God's grace. The blood of Christ covers all sins. It's always one step ahead. No matter how great the sin, the blood of God shed on Calvary's cross is greater still. That's why Holy Communion is such a... If we really all truly understood, knew, and believed what Holy Communion was, we'd probably all be on our faces with our eyes wet because what you're receiving there is truly the most holy, most powerful, most amazing gift imaginable, the very body and blood of God poured out for you and given to you, as Christ himself says, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's a true and real body and blood, just as your sins are true and real, just as your body and soul are true and real. It's a true and real body and blood. It's a true and real forgiveness, a true and real cleansing that's taking place in that gift and in that supper. Okay, anything we want to talk about there? So again, just kind of overarchingly, we've hit that not all sins are equal. There are some sins that are very, very great. Some sins that immediately are just the nature of them, the organic nature of them within the soul that does these things, has even cast out the Holy Spirit and gone into a state of impenitence and eternal death. There's all kinds of... uh, manifest, grave, gross, deadly sins, but anyone who returns to Christ in repentance is forgiven. Christ's own parable to this effect, of course, is the parable we know as the prodigal son, where the son leaves his father, goes out, squanders it, commits about every sin you can possibly commit, comes to his senses as he hits the proverbial rock bottom, returns to his father's house expecting to be a servant, a slave, and the father welcomes him instead as a son and sees the contrition. Again, he doesn't, he doesn't force some confession of sins. He doesn't you know, say, okay, well, I can see you're contrite. He just sees his son returning home and knows there's contrition there and immediately then treats him as a son, wraps the robe around him, welcomes him to the feast, rejoices, etc., etc. So that's Christ's own teaching. And all of this embodied in just one of my favorite lines from Christ because it's so simple and so wonderful. And that's whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. That little word whoever means no matter who you are or what you've done, If you want forgiveness, Christ has it for you. If you want to be reconciled with God, God has that for you in Christ Jesus. Okay, anything uh, we want to touch on then? Yes, sir, please. Uh, I was just thinking, there seems like there's at least two different kinds of uh, a clean conscience. Um, One would be someone who repents of their sin and believes they are forgiven. And then another, I guess, so-called clean conscience would be somebody who rejects God and therefore... They reject the idea that they've sinned, and therefore they don't need to be forgiven. So they say, my conscience is clean. Mm-hmm. And then you would have a third uh, distinction. Somebody who believes in God, but and they accept that they have sinned, but they don't believe that they're truly forgiven. Okay. So then it would maybe be preferable to be that one than the one that thinks, oh, I don't need to be forgiven when in fact... Yeah, well, well but not, yeah, both of those are just ways of having a dead conscience or a defiled conscience. So a, a clean conscience is one who acknowledges the forgiveness of sins and then is, is walking in sort of a daily state of repentance. And I mean, even not like St. Paul says, I don't know of anything against myself. I'm not thereby justified. I mean, that's kind of a descriptor. Like, only someone with a clean conscience can say that. Like, yeah, I've got these sins. I confess them. I'm forgiven. I don't know of anything grave against myself. Okay? So that's a clean conscience, creating me a clean heart, renewing me a right spirit. Now, when you're talking about somebody who's not of the faith and out there saying, well, I have a clean conscience, really what they have properly is a dead conscience, not a clean conscience. Like, yeah, you've, you've probably deadened your conscience to the point where it's not even telling you that you're, or you're just not remembering conveniently all the times your conscience has accused you, right? 
So it's one of those two things, but I would liken that more to a dead conscience than a clean conscience. Unbelievers can have a clean conscience in little tiny circumstances, you know, like a witness goes in and, and tells exactly the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and they can say, in this matter, I have a clean conscience. Yeah, great. I'm not, not going to deny that. In any kind of spiritual sense, though, it's more of a dead conscience than a clean conscience. The third category that you brought up, the man who thinks he's uh, sinned too much for uh, God's grace to forgive him, um, that really is a kind of despair and not a good state of the conscience either. In fact, the devil would love to lead us either into the self-righteousness, which was the category we just discussed, or into despair. Both are rejections of the gospel. And while it might seem pitiable and we might, it might evoke sympathy in us when someone says, no, I've sinned too great for God's grace, that's the wrong response. Because what's actually going on there is they're calling God a liar. And there's a kind of pride that won't accept that forgiveness of sins because it's too humiliating, too lowering. I want to stand on my own two feet or not at all. And that's all just masked in this pious language. But it's a heart that really needs to be rebuked. And it's one of the trickier places because you'd say, oh, despair, they need to be encouraged by the gospel. Not that particular kind of despair. They need to be asked, are you calling God a liar? Is that what you want to do here? Just cut to the chase and the whole poor me victim thing is a facade and a self-deceit. So just cut right to the chase with that and do the surgery uh, swift and deep. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, that's it. Let's, uh, let's close here. The Lord be with you. Yes.